Oh, here's a good one. Uh, yeah, okay. Whenever you're ready. Becky. 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 Oh, what do you want, Mom? <laughs> I want you to stop reading. It's supper time. But I'm in the middle of a chapter. You can finish after supper. Okay, I'll be there in a second. I'm Rebecca Diem, the communications manager at The Word on the Street and the host of Read the North. And this is an excerpt from a fifth grade journaling assignment titled Things I Love to Do. I can read a Babysitter's Club book in around 35 minutes. <laughs> Shall I keep going? Uh, yeah, yeah, do a little bit more. I really like reading a lot, but sometimes my reading gets me into trouble. Like when I'm doing a chore or something and I see a book or some comics that I haven't read, I pick them up and start reading. After that, I get in trouble for not doing my chores. <laughs> in honor of this episode, I'm returning to my early writing roots because today we are getting into the most personal genre yet to talk about memoir and creative nonfiction. If you've ever revisited an old diary, you probably know the particular feelings it can bring up. That mix of cringe and delight, while still feeling deep affection for the person you were when you wrote those things. Seeing all your most vulnerable thoughts spilled across a page, safe in the knowledge that no one else will ever read them. Well, most of the time. Occasionally, you might find yourself sharing them on a podcast, decades later, while the producer points out that inserting dialogue into your own journal entries is probably an early sign that you might be a writer. But honestly, most of the embarrassment I would have once felt reading those passages aloud has faded. I recognize the kid that wrote them, and I think she'd be pretty jazzed about my life as it is today. My current diaries, on the other hand, those are from my eyes and ears only. Because there's a pretty big difference between keeping a journal and writing out your ideas, opinions, or personal story for the whole world to read. It's one thing to scribble down your deepest inner thoughts. It's a whole other thing to craft them into a compelling narrative for public consumption. In this episode, we are speaking with two writers and an editor about that process, and the considerations, stylistic choices, and self-interrogation it involves. Also, before we get into it, I do just want to give a heads up that there is some discussion of sexual violence, racism, and the residential school system in this episode. So listen with care. So maybe your diary is more of a first draft than a polished memoir. Maybe that's all you want it to be. But maybe it could be something more. You should never discount the power of telling your own story. Just ask our first guest. My name is Helen Knott, and I am a Deniza Cree, Métis, and mixed Euro descent woman from Prophet River First Nations. And I live in the north um, in my home territories in a town called Fort St. John. I have always wanted to write. I think it was more like I used to make up stories when I was a little girl. And so I was more attracted to fiction. And then there was a point, I think it was, I was in my third or fourth year of my BSW. So I went to school for social work 
and I was in the bathtub and the bathtub is kind of like my holy place, like the cocoon filled with water where I could just like be quiet and rest for the day. And it was almost like this inner prompting of like, okay, you're going to write. And I was like, all right. And I got out of the bathtub and I wrote like the first 10 pages of what would eventually become my first memoir. And the whole time, you know, battling with, I guess, inner feelings of like, this is crazy. Why would I write my story? But then also, do I even want this out there? But just following along. And I feel like as long as I follow like inner promptings, then I'm kind of taken care of. And that's how I've lived my life, which is to my dad is crazy because <laughs> he always has like some anxiety of like, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? I'm like, don't you see? This is how I've made it this far. And so that's how I've learned to do things. And how I ended up with that book essentially was trusting that um, that story would make it into the hands of people who needed to read it. Helen's debut memoir, In My Own Moccasins, was released in 2019. And as of August 2023, she's just released a second memoir, Becoming a Matriarch, on the sudden loss of her mother and grandmother. Are your books books that you wish that you'd had at the stage of your life that you wrote them? I think for the the first book, um, yeah, I wish I had something like that. I think being able to read something like my first memoir that deals with like sexual violence and shame would have allowed me to feel less alone in my journey and would have relieved a lot of the things that I thought were only mine to carry, right? <laughs> of thinking that it was only me. Um, and since writing it and the amount of people that have reached out to me and, and told me their stories, I know that one, I'm not alone. And two, that it's helped kind of break down that that barrier of isolation for individuals and in their healing journeys. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you've spoken before about your work being written for Indigenous women, not about them. Can you expand on the importance of writing specifically for your audience um, or for an audience with similar experiences? I think a lot of the time growing up, I was expected to humanize myself and the struggles that I went through or that other people went through that I knew that were Indigenous in order for people to care about them. And I had spent a lot of time doing that in terms of being involved in advocacy spaces with like land sovereignty stuff and just getting to this point of being like, I'm not doing that anymore. And that's not what I'm writing this for because someone said, oh, this will be a really good teaching tool um, before it came out. And I was like, oh, that's not, <laughs> that's not what I want this for. I know that it is used for that, um, but that's not the purpose of it and being able to claim it for what, its original intention was, was also, um, I guess, like an act of my own sovereignty as a writer, or keeping my own power as well. Yeah, absolutely. Why do you think that people are drawn to writing memoir or creative nonfiction? I feel like because life is confusing and <laughs> it's hard. And I think a lot of people are trying to make sense of the human experience. And I was talking with someone else um recently and we were talking about craft books and they said well you know that was written and it was published and then it wasn't 
too long later that I felt like I already outgrew it. Like I was in a different stage in my life. And I'm like, they really are like snapshots when it comes to memoirs, like snapshots in terms of like a state of being and the way that you are in the world at that time, almost like a trail of, of breadcrumbs. In addition to writing her own memoirs, in the last few years, Helen has started teaching, supporting new writers as they untangle the strands of their own lives on the page. In 2021, she taught a six-part workshop with the Flying Book School of Reading and Writing called Owning Your Story, Foundational Memoir Writing. The goal was to help first-time memoir writers develop the tools and confidence they need to overcome the feelings of doubt and insecurity that can come with the genre, feelings that Helen herself understands deeply. I think it was six sessions that we did um, regarding memoir and looking at different structures is just like individuals are so fascinating with the stories that they hold and the stories that they want to tell. And I always feel like one of the biggest hurdles for them is that question of like, well, why me? Like, why should I put out this story? Or my story is not that important. Like, I really want to write this, but I just don't know. And I feel like no matter what you speak to, that there's other individuals in the world that hold that same experience. And I think that it's, it's still built on that thread of connection, being able to connect with people who hold the same experiences and maybe have seen it a different way. But I think that's the why. And I'll go um, over that question with one of my my girlfriends or my sisters that I walk with in this life. And she's like, okay, but why not you? And when you're saying like, why me? Are you also kind of going against like creator's wills or your pathway? What does that look like? And how do you kind of step into a space of ownership? And that was my biggest learning. And I just, I love spending time with people and, and for them to like, trust me with some of their work to look at it or talk about it with them, especially because there's a lot of writers who are like, quote unquote, closet writers who've never shown their work to anybody and being able to be trusted with like their little literary babies was amazing. How do we get to a place where everyone believes their story is worth telling? I mean, some of that is just overcoming mental hurdles. Imposter syndrome is real. So having a safe space to share and talk is huge. But on an industry level, it's also about whose stories we prioritize and who we make space for on our bookshelves. I feel like the literary world has been in a state of evolution, like where it's been shifting in terms of the voices that are highlighted and the stories that are being showcased or there's space being made for those stories to be told. And I feel like that's a really exciting time. So I was listening to Rust is Resistance this morning by, I think her name is Trisha Heresy. I could be like completely botching, <laughs> but she runs the Nap Ministry. And I feel like that's an area in terms of creative nonfiction where there needs to be more growth and avenues for what self-care and healing looks like in that space. And otherwise, I know that people do like stories with like the riveting big ups and downs. And I find that interesting because I've been talking with my girlfriend who's a Métis filmmaker. And we talk about this idea of the hero narrative and like people need to be superheroes for 
people to pay attention. And that's the kind of stories that they like the comeback type of stories and talk about the need to make space for just like being human. And what does that look like? And I'm more of a fan, I think now of like those small moment stories where someone is like off the rocker and like causes some chaos or something (laughs) because like we need to make more space for those messy human parts of our lives as well, I think. You might think that nonfiction could escape the plot conventions and expected narratives we see with fiction because it's grounded in real life. But people get stereotyped all the time in real life. It's not surprising that those stereotypes and expectations are often placed on people's writing, too. But it is frustrating. It's something our next guest is hoping to change through the projects she chooses to work on. Hi, my name is Anita Chong, and I'm executive editor at McClellan & Stewart, where I focus on literary fiction, as well as narrative nonfiction and memoir. I think there is a tendency to think of the stories of marginalized writers and peoples as inherently traumatic, sad, and full of grief and loss, which isn't to say that marginalized people don't have those experiences, but there is a danger of prioritizing the pain and the loss and not giving sufficient space to celebrate the love and the joy and sense of community that these communities also have. And one of the things I'm grateful for as publishing becomes more inclusive, as we open and create space for more stories, is this realization that people contain multitudes. People can contain heartache, but they can also contain silliness and joy and love, the full complexity of human experience. And so that's been a movement because it's been very easy for us to always focus on on the pain and the suffering and the loss, which isn't, again, isn't to say that there hasn't been those experiences, but it's been wonderful to see this creation of space where the heartache can exist alongside the full complexity of a person, the heartache set aside the joy. Here's a perfect example. Anita recently worked on the book Superfan, How Pop Culture Broke My Heart by Jen Sukfong Lee. In it, Jen covers everything from Anne of Green Gables to Gwyneth Paltrow, Bob Ross to Rihanna. To quote the book blurb, she uses pop culture as a revelatory lens to explore family, identity, belonging, grief, and the power of female rage. Can you tell us how that book came to be? Well, I've been a big fan of Jen Sukwang Lee for many years, and I think many people who follow the Can't Lit scene know that Jen Lee is a Renaissance woman. She, among other things, has written fiction, nonfiction, poetry. She has co-edited many anthologies, as well as she also works in publishing. She is an editor at ECW Press. So she's someone I have long followed. And a few years ago, I heard from her agent that she was working on a proposal for a collection of personal essays. And of course, I read it right away and was really so captivated by 
Jen's unique perspective, and of course, just her literary prowess, and the unique perspective she had as a Chinese woman, as well as a single mother, and a lifelong fan of pop culture. And I think the beauty of, of certain books is that they can shed a new light on things we always knew, but needed someone else to articulate for us. And I think what Jen has done so brilliantly is she's taken these strands about belonging, identity, family, and this thing that is pop culture, which is all around us and speaks to society's obsessions, fascinations, um, the things we're interested in, the things we prioritize and braided them together. And one of the things I loved about Superfan is the fact that there is this convergence of both heartache, seriousness, but also the fun and celebration of things that are normally considered superficial, such as gossip, such as celebrity culture. But of course, those are the things that actually bring us together. Um, those are the things that when you get together your friends, you often talk about, you gossip, whether it's about people in your life or people you read about. Allowing writers to exist on the page in the fullness of their identity, that human messiness that Helen talked about, to me, that's what makes for the most compelling narrative nonfiction. It's also a balance that takes a lot of careful fine-tuning to strike. As an editor, Anita is helping to shape the writer's story. Often, that does require going deep into the most vulnerable, messy parts. So one of the most challenging aspects of working on a memoir is navigating that line between knowing what to include and what not. So one of the things I always say to someone who is working on a piece of personal writing is that you are under no obligation to share more than you are comfortable. However, I see my role as an editor as partly highlighting for the author's consideration those opportunities where providing more detail or specificity or context might help to deepen their reader's understanding of a moment in the writer's life. And so I always operate from a position of acknowledging that my job as an editor is to ask questions. My job as an editor is to help close the gap between what is in the writer's mind and what is on the page. And the challenge with memoirs is you are not talking about a fictional universe where you can make things up, you can do streamlining. You are actually talking about someone's life and you are often talking about some incredibly difficult periods in a person's life. And so part of the challenge is prompting further excavation, further consideration, but also creating space for the writer to recognize when there are lines that they would rather not cross. Part of my process is really talking to the writer at length and together coming to an understanding of where their boundaries are so that they know what they are, I can hear what they are, and we will together respect them. But I also have to trust them that they will monitor and respect those boundaries for themselves. And I often say, rest assured that if the response is, I'd rather not go into that, that's a sufficient response for me. 
In our last episode, Baca Phoenix bookseller Chris Sago describes science fiction and fantasy as genres defined primarily by their focus on writing about things that don't exist. In that sense, narrative nonfiction is almost its polar opposite. Because as Anita said, the challenge with memoir is you're talking about someone's real life. It's writing almost entirely about people, places, and things that do exist, that have already happened. So it is really important to have those boundaries, both for yourself and for your readers. That disconnect that we're feeling amongst each other is growing. And so that's the common theme through all my work, is to try to make people feel again, to remind us of the humanity. This is John Brady MacDonald, a Nahiawak Métis writer, artist, historian, musician, playwright, actor, and activist. He's the author of several books, most recently Carrying It Forward, published in late 2022. I'm very honored and blessed that I've been able to try my hand at very different um, art forms throughout the years. It's been a goal of mine to do as much as I can to express as much as I can through art with whatever medium I, I can try to. Whereas my training, if I, for lack of a better term, and the most of my experience is as a visual artist and as a spoken word poet and performance artist. The ability to try my hand in music at acting, it's something that I'm very grateful for because for a long time in my life, coming from a very um, deprived childhood where I didn't have access to a lot of art, to a, a lot of a creative expression in my younger days, now that I'm an adult and I have that opportunity, I've got a lot of time to make up for. So I've, I've, I've had an opportunity and the honor and the privilege to be able to do these things and to express what I'm feeling and to be able to use that creative outlet to share my, my experiences, share my emotions, share my thoughts. And if I've written something or I've created something that brings you joy or I've written something that makes you uncomfortable, or I've written something that angers you or scares you, then I as an artist have done my job. However, my role is not to exploit those emotions. You know, I'm not, it's not for shock. I, I don't, there, there was a time in my, in my career where as a younger, brash, young metalhead, <laughs> the work I was doing was for shock value. Everything had skulls and everything had you know, very dark imagery. But I've grown out of that and realized that my, the artwork, I have to take responsibility for what that emotion that caused. And if it causes pain in somebody, I have to take responsibility for that. And I have to make amends for that and be humble and, and show that humility for that. So while I want people to feel something after being my work, I'm, I'm not sacrificing someone else's trauma on the altar of self-expression of artistic expression, I'm very cognizant of the fact that my my work, if it's causing an emotional connection, I'm not just taking a person to the cliff and pushing them off. I want to make sure there's aftercare there as well. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting point, especially when it comes to memoir and creative nonfiction, where you're drawing on on real people and real lives and and your own personal journey in order to create art. What drew you initially to to writing your memoir, and how did you go about ensuring that you were able to tell that story with that care and with that responsibility? 
the stories from the memoirs actually stem from me expressing myself online. My first book was published in 2004 when I was a brash young man that was kind of seen as this wonderkind of indigenous literature at the time. And I had my, my little 15 minutes of fame and I was, you know, when you're 20 years old and you're getting flown across the country and, and talking on stages and, you know, Margaret Atwood's coming up to you and saying she likes what you're writing and stuff. It, 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 it does go to your head and, and it kind of like, holy cow. This is... <laughs> so I was, I thought, man, this is awesome. And then I went for 20 years with my work being unpublished, my artwork sitting in my studio, kind of lost in the wilderness as it were. And it was a very humbling experience. However, at that time, in that gap between when my first book was published and as we're sitting here now, we've had this invention of social media, which allowed for an opportunity for instant gratification when, when writing something. However, it also allowed the keyboard warriors and the trolls and the right wing nuts out there to come out of the woodwork. And it was part of my role as a warrior, as an Indigenous person, to make that steps to start addressing some of what was happening and what was being said. And through that, my, my Facebook posts started becoming, I don't want to say rants, but they were longer um, there were longer pieces that I had an opportunity to sit down and write and have it instantly published, as it were. And so the way the book came about was I had sent in a poetry manuscript to Woolsack and Wynn Publishers. They rejected the poetry manuscript. However, Noelle Allen, who was following me on Facebook, unbeknownst to me, said, hey, those longer Facebook posts you make, those longer social media posts you make, have you ever thought about expanding on them into essay form? And to be honest, I never had. So it gave me an opportunity to take myself out of my comfort zone. It was, it was very much out of my comfort zone because when you're writing poetry or you're writing creative fiction, you get to hide behind a turn of a phrase or you know, your spangles and your bangles and your, your sparkly things, whereas this didn't allow me that. And I had to be very cognizant of what I was writing. And it made me go through everything I was saying with a fine-tooth comb and, and weighing that, that responsibility. And one of the lessons I've learned, particularly through my cultural teachings and my spiritual teachings, is that if you listen to elders, Indigenous elders, they will say something. And then there's this great, big, long, pregnant pause before they say something again. And another pause between phrases, because that elder is weighing everything they're about to say. And once it leaves their mouth, they have to take responsibility for what is done with those words. So that was something that was very, in writing this book, that was very forefront in my mind, was whatever I said in this book, I had to take responsibility for. And, and take responsibility for what people do with it. So for me to actually take these and expand on them, these longer than usual Facebook posts was way out of my comfort zone. And that's okay with me because it made me feel again. But at the same time, I wasn't re-victimizing myself if I had, it would have been if I'd written this 10 years earlier, 15 years mm -hmm. earlier, right? I didn't have that, that buffer of a little bit of time and the supports I have around me now. John's essays in Carrying It Forward move seamlessly between his past and present. 
He writes on indigenous culture, his home in northern Saskatchewan, and the time he discovered and claimed England for the First Peoples of the Americas. The thoughtfulness and care he talks about is evident throughout, no more so than when he touches on his experiences in the residential school system. I am a residential school survivor. I was in residential school from 1984 to 1989. My parents were both residential school survivors. All my aunties and uncles on both sides. So that's almost 15 uncles and aunties on both sides are residential school survivors. My grandmother is a residential school survivor. So that's three generations of residential school survivors in my family. My children are the first generation in four to have never known the inside of a residential school. What often gets lost in in discussions about residential school is particularly in the media. Um, and I'm, I'm I'm not one of these guys who throws the media under the bus. The media does this. Rah, rah, rah. No, no, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> but a lot of the narrative often when you when you see it on the news, for example, they're showing black and white images from the 30s and 40s and 50s. You're seeing the nuns. You're seeing the the great big brick buildings as if it was ancient history, as if it was 100 years ago. The year I got out of residential school, a few months later, The Simpsons first aired. The year the last residential school closed, 1997, 1998, the movies in the theater were Independence Day and Twister. NSYNC's first album was on the charts. So was the Spice Girls. And Friends was in season three. And so for us as later generation, last generation residential school survivors, our stories often overlooked and forgotten because the, the narrative that often gets told about residential school survivors is that it's extremely old people. It's our elders who went through this. And it was our elders who had this happen to them at the hands of the church. My residential school was a residential school that was funded by the government of Canada, but the employees there were all Indigenous people residential school survivors themselves. So in my particular residential school, and, and this was kind of this happened quite a bit across residential schools towards the 70s to the 90s, was that they would employ indigenous people to work at these at these places, taking the tools, quote unquote, the lessons, quote unquote, that they themselves had experienced as residential school survivors, and taking that and putting it onto the young people who were in the residential schools in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. That's a hard lesson to hear, particularly when you're fighting that you understand that it's part of that, that cycle of trauma, that cycle of abuse that we went through. To talk about these things, I don't go into great detail about what happened to me in residential school in the book. I, I, I give a few examples, but there's enough knowledge out there amongst Indigenous people that you can kind of infer what happened to us there, what happened to me there. And um, even particularly within a lot of Indigenous communities too, we as, as younger generation survivors don't feel comfortable. It took me a long time to be able to be comfortable saying that because I had repressed so much. And in my situation, no, I wasn't forcibly removed from my home community. But at the same time, I suffered the same amount of loss of language, loss of culture, the trauma of watching 
physical abuse, sexual abuse, and experiencing those abuses firsthand myself. So for my generation, it is a very, there's a lot of people who aren't comfortable sharing it yet, and that's okay. There's going to come a time where my generation is the last generation of residential school survivors with firsthand knowledge. And so what we, me and a few other people have been doing uh, of my generation is sharing those stories and advocating for those people who either aren't ready to talk about it themselves, or in many cases are no longer here to share their stories, to be that last living link, as it were, one day to what happened in those, in those schools. Doing this work can be heavy. And to John's earlier point, making sure you've taken the time and space you need to feel grounded and supported before setting pen to page is so important. You should always come before the work. But there is also so much power in taking that space to reclaim your own story. And when you do feel ready to share, writing can open up new space for healing. Through writing, we can unburden ourselves and invite others to help carry the load. This is Helen again. I think with your writing... I see it less as an invitation to observe your life and more of an invitation to connect. And I think that theme of connection is really strong in your writing. Um, What do you think the... (laughs) Sorry? I said, I love that. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm hoping for, you know, um, when I kind of move into different spaces. It's also to like relay. And I feel like that's a part of my purpose in terms of like, being here is I'm called to remember. So I've been learning how to like navigate memory without carrying the weight of having been because like memory can be so heavy, right? And in this role of relaying story, I want to be able to get to a place where I'm moving through things actively and able to not necessarily create a roadmap, but like a pick and choose, like maybe this tool will help you, or maybe this insight will resonate with someone because we all go through these very human journeys, very alone. So trying to utilize that space to connect, but also to hopefully help people learn how to also live without carrying that weight of memory, but being able to hold it in your hand and not not be burdened by it, I guess. Narrative nonfiction is a bridge, linking the reader to the writer through what they put forward on the page. It's an offering to find a moment of shared humanity, to take what you need and leave what you don't. It can also act as a bridge between forms of writing and the perceived barriers we put between different genres and types of books. That's what Anita loves about it, both as an editor and a reader. I'm drawn towards creative nonfiction because there is an ability to to challenge and to play with structure, with narrative shape, and fundamentally with ways of telling story. One of the things that I I often quote is Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's idea of the danger of the one story. And of course, she was talking about particular perspectives, which of course is very important to me. But also, I think there there is so much to be explored and enjoyed in playing with 
narrative form. And sometimes I think we think about genre and categories in too rigid a way. And one of the things I love about reading works by Indigenous authors in particular is that these boundaries between what is fiction, what is nonfiction, what is poetry, they don't exist. Rather, they all fall under this beautiful umbrella of just storytelling. And so I think that's why I, I sort of find myself drawn to narrative nonfiction in particular, because as I say, there is this beautiful merging and play of things we have traditionally categorized as fiction and nonfiction. And actually there are ways in which a, a brilliant narrative nonfiction writer, including memoirs, can put something on the page in a way that is new, that is exciting. And because of that, they can capture an experience in, in a way that is so illuminating and exciting for, for the reader. You're absolutely right. There is like a breakdown in the in the barriers between like in these artificial boundaries between like fiction and nonfiction when it comes to memoir and creative nonfiction. That's it. And we've seen it on the fiction side with the whole category that is autofiction. And so booksellers and marketers are very good at coming up with these labels for these specific experiments, these specific approaches. But I, as I say, one of the things I'm so excited about is to see writers in all categories, in all genres, playing. So in the last few years, there has been this term that we've been using in publishing called genre adjacent. And it's a category that I'm particularly interested in because all it means is if we look at fiction, it's literary fiction, say, that plays with elements of a certain genre. So it's a recognition that these rigid genre boundaries of the past don't have to be that rigid. And in fact, there's great opportunity in pushing up against and playing and sometimes subverting those genre expectations. Creative nonfiction is a genre primarily defined by the fact that the story is true, but also isn't like science journalism, or a detailed historical account. Other than that, you can kind of do whatever. The door is flung wide open to incorporate elements of every other genre under the sun. Creative nonfiction and narrative nonfiction are synonymous, and they stand in contrast to what we have traditionally thought of as, um, as nonfiction of the kind that is more research-based, um, that perhaps might be more academic, or has a stronger thesis. Both creative nonfiction and narrative nonfiction can lean on techniques that have traditionally been thought of as belonging to the field of fiction. So that could include the use of flashbacks, non-linear structures, different perspectives, as I say, a range of techniques that we have traditionally thought of as belonging to fiction. So that's the general umbrella. Then, to go a step further, narrative nonfiction can easily incorporate other genres. But the reverse is also true. How many fictional books have you read that incorporated autobiographical elements or true events? A bunch, right? Creative nonfiction can seep into romance or horror or thrillers or perhaps speculative fiction. For example, 
last year, I released a book called Electricity Slides, which was published by Bookland Press. I've always wanted to write a book like Naked Lunch or Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. <laughs> uh, I'm a huge fan of the the cut-up technique of writing that was employed by the Dadaists in the early 20th century and William S. Burroughs and Hunter S. Thompson. Those books appeal to me, this non-linear, non-formularic way of writing. So I had a large series of monologues and one-person plays and weird little performance art pieces that I'd written and performed over the years. I took all those and literally I, I sat at a typewriter and I typed them all out and was literally cutting paragraph by paragraph. And I put them all into a, into a box and I shook the box and was pulling out paragraphs and just trying to make a narrative out of it as best I could, a nonlinear narrative. And the book is, it's weird. <laughs> I'm very happy. It's weird. And it's one of those books where when I was talking to people about it, they said, ah, nobody's ever going to publish that. I found a publisher. <laughs> which was awesome. And they published it verbatim, which as, as a writer for over 25 years of, of writing, that has never happened where a publisher has not said, well, we got to edit this and this needs work. And this, to have a publisher go, no, nah, we're good. That was cool. That's really and fun. So, and the funny thing is with this book is while it is nonlinear and non-formulaic, it actually turn out being semi-autobiographical just by serendipity. It addresses a lot of notions of dealing with authority, dealing with the system, being an outsider looking in. It, it addressed a lot of my own personal struggles with PTSD, with addiction, with my sexuality, with various different aspects of my life that I was an unintentional when I wrote it. But in the narrative, there are aspects of my life which kind of happens throughout my work. It all, all my work has something in it that is very autobiographical in terms of my emotions. And so this book that I had no idea was going to do that turned out doing it too. Yeah. Do you think that genre books um, or books of any genre, like that they have a transformative effect on the reader? I would hope so. I would hope that anything you read has a transformative effect in terms of literature that is telling a narrative. That if you're the book that you're reading, you should go into it with an open mind and be willing to have your thoughts changed. If you're not willing to change and learn, then you're defeating the purpose of your own humanity. As humans, we are meant to learn. We are meant to share. We are meant to teach. In my culture, the word for teacher is kisnamagyu. And depending on how it translates, it is... Um, it's not so much teaching, it is sharing the knowledge I have with you. And so regardless of what you're writing, even if you're writing Harlequin Romance, if it's something that brings you joy and pleasure, hopefully you're still learning something from it. And if you're, if you're not learning something from it, hopefully that there's still that desire to go out and find a book that you'll learn something from. And so with that, we come to the end of this season. And we're sort of back to where we started in episode one, with the idea that the perfect book for you is out there somewhere. But I think we've learned a lot on this round trip. You know the saying, it's about the journey, not the destination. And maybe now you feel a bit more equipped to navigate the wild waters of Canlit to find your perfect book. Or maybe you feel prepared to look further afield 
and see what happens when you cast off the trappings of genre and sally forth into the literary unknown. Maybe you have a new understanding of what genre can be. Maybe the real genre is the friends we made along the way. It can be overwhelming to sift through everything being published these days, to find your perfect next read. And genre gives you a great roadmap. But by deepening our understanding of its nuances, we can move forward with a more expansive view of our literary landscape and a willingness to wander off the beaten path from time to time. A direct route might be the most efficient, but think of all the great books you might miss if you don't take the occasional detour. You'll probably find out that, actually, there's a bunch of perfect books out there for you. There are books that will surprise you, challenge you, inspire you, and delight you in every genre. And I hope you'll enjoy that journey of discovery as much as we have. For now, we're signing off on this season two deep dive into every genre on your bookshelf. And by the time you're listening to this episode, my husband Jimmy and I will be well into our thrilling new journey into Canadian kidlet alongside our newborn daughter. Will she be a horror fan like her dad? Will she fall in love with fantastical worlds like her mom? I'm really looking forward to finding out and probably discovering some unexpected new favorites along the way. Thanks for tuning in to the final episode of our second season of Read the North. The show is hosted by me, Rebecca Diem, and produced and edited by Quentin Bradshaw. Theme music and scoring are by James Ellerkamp. Production assistance and episode artwork is by Haley Richardson. Thank you to our guests for this episode, Helen Knott, Anita Chong, and John Brady McDonald. Read the North is a co-production of The Word on the Street Toronto and Met Radio. For more community radio programming, you can tune in and listen live at metradio.ca. To keep up with The Word on the Street and all the latest festival news, be sure to give us a follow on social media at torontowots or sign up for our newsletter at toronto.thewordonthestreet.ca. This is the final episode of our second season. For those who've been listening all season, thanks so much for following along. We hope you've enjoyed the show. The whole season is now available on most podcast platforms, so send it to your friends, write us a review, and subscribe to be the first to know about future updates. It all helps. For the last time this season, thank you for listening to Read the North. I'll see you on the street.